Well, my name is, it's a little loud, I think. All right. My name is Shane Shaw, and I'm one of the elders here at, at Hannaford, and I'm filling in today for Pastor John. He's back in the eastern part of the United States. Uh, his daughter's graduating from college, so I'm speaking today, and Jez are speaking next week, so uh, visitors don't run off because of the guy that's speaking this Sunday. I'd like for you to do is turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, if you have your Bibles, we will have it up on the screen here in a minute. Carla was giving me a bad time because I have to look over my glasses to see the writing in my notebook or the on-off switch on the microphone. Um, My Bible's even worse, so once I read this, I'm going to set it there. I have it printed out in 16 font so I can see it. It's funny, yesterday I was refing lacrosse in Bozeman, and I was refing this game between Cody and Great Falls. And uh, the official that was refing with me, he's from Butte. He's uh, about 6'3", 245, dark-haired. He's a police officer in Butte. And... I love reffing with him because if I call 911, he's the guy I want to show up. So, so anyway, we took away a goal from Cody, and I think we'd done that like two trips down the field in a row, and something happens, the ball goes in the net, and I hear somebody behind me say, well, what's he going to think up to take a goal away from us this time? So there's a break in the action there. I don't know if there was a timeout. So I wander over to the Cody fans. And I said, uh, does anybody have a pen and a piece of paper? And they looked at me funny, and I said, I just was going to pass around a sign-up list for refs from Cody, because we don't have any, and we need some people to ref lacrosse from Cody. And this one lady sitting there said, well, they've been doing it too, pointing at the Great Falls people. Anyway. As I prepared this sermon this week, one of the things that it has occurred to me as I look at these ideas that I have to learn them first. And sometimes as a sports official, and I ref football and uh, basketball, wrestling, lacrosse, I'm not refing basketball anymore, but I did for 30 plus years. Um, there's a lot of things that are said that aren't gracious. And as an, a sports official, I haven't always been gracious back. And when I look at this passage today and the one or two points that I want us to think about, I had to look at my own life. In conversations here at Hannaford in our Elder Board, we've discussed the personal relationship climate in our society, divisions between people, the anger and hostility that shows up on social media, the divisions between family and friends. This thing's going to bug me until I... And, you know, these divisions in our community, they creep into the church, and our reactions, in fact, my reactions to some of these things do not reflect the faith I claim or profess to believe. And some of you have seen some of the discussions I had in the last year on social media, and, you know, I have to confess that uh, fellow elder Clay Burkett has busted me more than once because some of the stuff I wrote. And so... I had, to, I had to back up and say, what am I trying to say? How am I acting? And 
even if I was right, and of course I'm right, um, is it effective with people? Is it effective for me as a Christian? But even more importantly, is it effective for me as a leader here at the church? You know, we as Christians should not be known for our divisive, difficult relationships. Conduct like that shouldn't be our message. So what do we do? How should we respond? What should we say? You know, it's difficult sometimes to remain silent when comments or statements, especially in online chats or discussions, that are dishonest, inflammatory, or are personal attacks on us or what we believe or people we know. But I want to suggest we can stand our ground without making incendiary comments or personal attacks on other people. We should learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. It is my desire in my own life that these verses we look at today will bring about heart and life change. A second thing I've been working on is I've been asking different pastors and uh, people I, I look up to, people who study the Bible, uh, people that I know about what it is that is the major issue or issues facing the church today. And one, of the, one person, in fact, he used to be on staff here and he attends another church in Helena now, very good teacher, and I respect his viewpoint on things. I called him and said, what do you think the, most, most, or the number one issue facing the church today is? And without even, without even hesitating, he said, cheap grace. Well, what is cheap grace? What did he mean by that? And in his view, it's a reflection of the professed followers of Jesus Christ who live as if sin didn't matter. That a prayer requesting salvation without any notion of repentance or desire for a relationship with Jesus Christ was all you needed to be a Christian. And that's very concerning. But it isn't new. In fact, the term cheap grace can be traced to a book written by German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1937. The book was called The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace as grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, the emphasis on the benefits of Christianity without the costs involved. And I worry about our society today that we've drifted into that. That you, you're a Christian because you claim it, not because there's been anything inside of you that's, that's changed. I started to worry there for a second that my phone was still on. Um, well, what is grace? You know, the definition I've heard my whole life is that grace is unmerited favor. And specifically, unmerited favor from God is the grace of God. But you know, John 1.14 says, and he's talking here in this passage about the Word, as Jesus Christ was the Word, or the perfect expression of God, and you read elsewhere where the Word, Jesus Christ, was the last and best revelation that God had for mankind. But this is what John 1.14 says, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh, and dwelled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <coughs> Jesus was full of grace. Now, that means much more than 
me receiving unmerited favor from God. So this idea of grace is a lot bigger than just getting something we don't deserve, which is what our basic understanding of grace is. Now you know something, Jesus was full of grace even when he threw the money changers out of the temple. So being full of grace didn't make Jesus weak, and it doesn't make us weak. So we don't want to think that, well, we're going to be people who are just very gracious, meaning we're going to get run over or we're going to be weak. It just means that we're going to respond in a way that identifies us and glorifies God in the process as followers of Jesus. Now the last verse in the passage we're looking at today, and this is 2 Peter 3, but the last passage says this, in part of it, it says, to grow in grace. So if you're going to take notes today, if you have that as something you do, write on the back of the bulletin, if you will, what you think it means to grow in grace. Just take a couple seconds and think about that. What do you think it means to grow in grace? And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Before I read the scripture today, let's pray together. Father, I pray that the words from your word and the information that's laid out today and the thoughts from my heart will bring glory to you and at least cause us pause to think. Pray that it would change our hearts from the inside out. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Well, let's read in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 3. And this is all part of the process of understanding the last verse of this section. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This idea is uniformitarianism. It's a rejection that God's in control. It's a rejection of God's past judgment. It's a rejection of the words from the Bible. It's a rejection of Scripture. And in, their, in this, their culture, people were taking the same skeptical, mocking, scoffing view of the words from Scripture that we hear today. For this, verse 5, for this they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flood, flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And the second thing you see there, that people scoff at God's judgment. We don't hear a lot about that today. There's a uh, a lot of people that live as if there is no accountability in their life. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then in verse 10 here, there's a little 
uh, further explanation about the day of the Lord, and we're not going to go into that today, but in this section there's a lot, of, a lot of things to unpack, but it's something you could do on your own, a study on what the day of the Lord is. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? <coughs> Sounds pretty ominous to me. There are sections in Scripture that people just kind of drive by, they, they ignore. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord, in other words, the fact that He has not turned to judge, is find my place again here, is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. It's this last verse that I really want to focus on more than, more than the rest of this. And there's a lot there, like I said, to unpack if we were going to study through that and really understand all the terms there, it would take us several weeks. And I'd encourage you to pick up your, your Bible and study. In the last verse, verse 18, I call these drive-by words. And you see this verse, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've, I l memorized that verse when I was a little kid, maybe five or six years old. I've known it my entire life virtually. But you know what? I've driven right by that phrase, grow in grace, over the years, over and over and over. And not really paid attention to what it means. So what does it mean? Grow in grace. And secondly, how do you do that? I mean, you think about this. You know, unmerited, I always look at grace as unmerited favor. Well, how do I grow in unmerited favor? But that's not what we're talking about here. And the second thing is, when you see that idea grow in grace, well, how do you do that? You know, a few years ago, I went on this fishing trip in Canada. And we went to a place called Dory Lake. Let's see if this picture shows up. There we go. There's some of us, that, some of the characters, some of you know. And you see uh, Mr. Bloom on the end, and Marvin, and uh, Jim Pearson's in there. Uh, we went to this fishing, this lake up in Canada. It took us about 15 hours to get there. And I'd been thinking about this idea of grow in grace, and I thought about it for the whole trip. 
yeah, there were a few side things that came up, but I kept thinking about what does it mean to grow in grace? And I struggled with that idea. So as luck would have it, my roommates were Flower Power and the drummer. And you can go to the next picture. So there's Marvin, the drummer, and Mike Bloom. Flower Power is just a play on his name. Sorry, but actually back when I was in high school, Sims, we wrestled the state tournament and Sims had a couple of kids. One was named Bloom and one was named Blossom, and they had a sign on the wall in the gym talked about flower power. And I never have forgotten it, so I always call Mike that. But anyway, we were out in the boat. Can you? I'm retired law enforcement. Mike Bloom's retired law enforcement. Marvin's a professional drummer. So you think about that. Marvin was stuck in a cabin and in a boat for two days with a couple of cops. Or... I was stuck in the boat for two days with a couple of drummers. Um, we had a great time. We had great conversations. And you can put that next picture up just to prove I did catch a fish. <laughs> All right. So we had a great time. And that northern pike was about three feet long that Marvin was holding. Um, and he said, he said that was just bait where he came from and threw it back. We had a great time in the boat, and we discussed that verse, that idea, the entire trip. And when I got back to Helena, I didn't have any better idea what that meant than when I left. So, what do you do when you don't understand Scripture? And there's some principles that exist that we've been taught, that you've heard here before. In fact, you've heard it from Galen Dowdy in a couple of studies recently. But I, just so you understand... Ideas when you run into a uh, scripture verse that you have trouble comprehending. And first of all, you always look at the context, which is why we looked at the whole chapter this morning. And in the context, this was advice to a church that was facing a hostile and skeptical world. You learn about the author. In this case, it was the Apostle Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. You understand the circumstances in which the text was written. And this was right at the end of Peter's life. Uh, it wasn't long after this. He was crucified. Um, you know, and he's worried about people who were following false teachers. And they were, they were becoming fearful about their salvation. Uh, their, their steadfastness was being taken away. So the peace of God that comes from salvation is missing when you follow error. <coughs> That's what was going on. And then you look at the Scripture in a wider view. How does it fit with other passages? And then you consult other sources, resources, commentaries, other pastors, teachers. And then you can meditate on it. Lastly, you can ask God for help. You can pray about it. That really shouldn't be lastly, but that is uh, one of the things that you could do when you really struggle to understand the Scripture is ask God to help you with it. But you need to look at those things all together. Well, as we develop this, who was Peter? And Peter's one of those guys that I, I laugh at sometimes because uh, even though I'm not the leader he was, I see a lot of myself in him. You know, he's the guy that saw Jesus walking across the water and jumped out there to walk on it too. And then when he got out there, he realized what a mistake he'd made and started to sink. He was the guy who, when they came to arrest Jesus, he pulled out his sword and cut off the, the ear of the high priest's servant. 
Now, the only reason he cut off his ear is because he missed, because you know he was aiming for right there. Because that was his response to attack. We attack back with violence. That was Peter. You know, when after, after Jesus was crucified and was buried and rose from the dead, Peter went back to what he knew. He went back to fishing. He was one of those guys that hung out in a fishing boat. Peter was the guy who, when confronted with the fact that he was with Jesus by some people standing around, he denied he even knew Jesus. And he went out and wept bitterly when he realized what he'd done. This is an emotional, uh, you know, he was somebody who reacted and said what he needed to say at the time or what he thought was important. He, uh, he once, once in one section of Scripture you see he says something brilliant and then right after that he says something kind of idiotic. This was the young man, Simon, son of Jonas. But you know, you look at what else Peter had to say in John chapter 6, it says... But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus asked them if they were going to leave. And he says, Whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we come to, have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. <clears throat> Peter said he was following Jesus because he had the words <clears throat> of eternal life. The message the Christian offers the world, and it still rings true. You know, I, when I was a kid, young guy, this music group called the Bee Gees became very popular. And some of their music I love. I was listening to one just in the last week. <clears throat> and when we were kids, we used to try to mimic Barry Gibb when he'd sing in falsetto, you know. And I was trying to do that this week, thinking maybe I could do it in front of the church, and I think I'd have scared off the frogs. But Anyway... The three brothers, Maurice and Robin and Barry Gibbs, sing this song, and part of the words are, Nobody gets too much heaven no more. It's much harder to come by. I'm waiting in line. Nobody gets too much love anymore. And they wrote, they wrote this song, whatever, 40 years ago, and those words still ring true. When we look at our society, the people around us, everybody wants that. Everybody's looking for that. They want heaven. And we have the message. Our Savior brought the words of eternal life to our world. So we should be careful how we act so that they don't hear the words of division when they need to hear the words of grace. Do we see people as objects of God's grace? Because when we start doing that, we start seeing ourselves. Well, just some things to know from this text, if you wanted to take some notes, because we went through a lot, and I just made some notes for you to remember out of that section of Scripture. First of all, people who mock God do not define truth or control God. So don't let them impact your thinking either. People who mock God do not define truth or control God. It's easy to forget that in a debate. But your and my opinion about God makes no difference on whether God is who he is. In other words, it's not our job to defend God. And when I was a police officer, a young officer, I always thought it was my job to defend the law. And so my ability to enforce the law was... Well, the law, whether the law stood or fell, depended on my ability to enforce it. 
bad mistake. Sometimes you have to make a choice not to because sometimes there's a better way. But we don't have to defend God. God will defend himself. Scripture says, and Peter wrote it, be ready to give an account of the hope that's in you. That's our job. Second thing is about this passage is God's, judge, God's judgment is certain. He judged the world before with water, and he's going to do it again, and we're accountable to him. Thirdly, God's people need to live like they belong to God. And this, these are all thoughts from this chunk of scripture that we just went through. And then we need to be on guard, and we need to know Scripture so we are not carried away with the teachings of wicked and sinful men who have uh, wicked motives, and they attack the truth. And when we follow them, we become insecure, unsettled, fearful. And when we're afraid, when we think our position is threatened, that's often when these reactions come out. And lastly, it says we need to grow in two areas. And these are in the grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, these are like two branches of the same tree. These ideas grow from the same, the same root. The word grow, in verse 18, is a pre present tense command, imperative type of word. It's suggesting, or telling us even better, that this is an act of the will. This is what you're to do. Grow in grace and knowledge. Well, that's the extent of my uh, Greek expertise. If, if, you want to, if you want to study Scripture and you want to look at the Greek, you can Google a verse and look it up in the interlinear Bible. It'll pop up. You can get it. And you can see the words written in the Greek letters if you want to see that. And then it'll have the words how it's translated. And then it'll have whatever version you have below laid out so you can understand how it was written, how they interpreted it, and you can understand it from that perspective. Uh, that's how I learn Greek. I read it from Google. Well, what does it mean again to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Well, we can think about that in a lot of ways, and it's not a simple idea. You know, Warren Wiersbe said this in his commentary on 2 Peter, knowledge without grace can be a terrible weapon. Grace without knowledge can be very shallow. It is one thing to know the Bible, and quite another to know the Son of God. You can think about that for a week or two or a month. Look at what Peter wrote in the first chapter of this book about what Pastor John MacArthur called the Christian graces. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins. So again, we're looking at this idea, growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Well, growing in knowledge is more than just an academic exercise. It's more than just reading the Bible. It's more than just knowing a bunch of words and truth. Even Satan himself knows a lot about God and about Jesus. I mean, he has all this knowledge, so it has to be more than that. Well, look at what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, talking about Jesus Christ, that I may know him. That's one of his goals, that I may know him. I'd ask you, do you know him? Do you want to know him? The only way to heaven for you is through the work of Jesus Christ. You must embrace grace for yourself, repent of your sinfulness, and ask for forgiveness that is offered through his death on the cross. That is the gospel. That is the message we have for the world. And it is through the gospel that we must come in order to receive eternal life. The message that Christ brought. Well, think about this next idea there. He says, that I may know him, and then, and the power of his resurrection. You know, that idea right there should transform us. Have you ever thought about what that idea means? What impact does the reality of Christ's power over death bring to your heart? Does it give you peace? Does it give you confidence? Do you live your life without fear? You know, we not only have the words of eternal life, but we know who the Savior was who spoke them and lived them. The power of his resurrection. If you're going to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're going to grow in that. Think about that idea. The power of his resurrection and what that does for your heart. And the fellowship of his suffering. That's the next thing Paul wrote. All related to that I may know him. You know, I haven't explored this idea much, but Paul did. But I'd wonder when you think about that, the fellowship of his suffering. Is grace really cheap? You ever think about it, what it costs? Being conformed to his death. This one goes even a little deeper. Die to self. If you want to know Jesus Christ, you have to think about how that impacts you as yours, in your own heart. Faith is personal. We worship corporately, but your relationship with God is personal. Do you have that? You have to come to terms with the concept, dying to self. Now, each one of these ideas we could develop on its own. I'm just throwing some of this out there for you to think about. Put it in a little packet for you to mull, mull over over the weeks ahead. But when it comes to the ideas in this verse, Alexander McLaren, who was a Bible scholar over 100 years ago, wrote this. These are the last words of an old man talking about Peter and the last verse that we're discussing this morning. These are the words of an old man, the last words of an old man, written down as his legacy to us. He was himself a striking example of his own precept. It would be an interesting study to examine these two letters of the Apostle Peter in order to construct from them a picture of what he became and to contrast it with his own earlier self when full of self-confidence, rashness, and instability. It took a lifetime for Simon, the son of Jonas, to grow into Peter, but it was done. And the very faults of the character became strength. And what he had proved possible in his own case, he commands and commends to us. And from the height to which he has reached, he looks upward to the infinite ascent 
which he knows he will attain when he puts off this tabernacle, and then downward to his brethren, bidding them too to climb and aspire. Interesting. Written a long time ago and in terms of our own lives, over a hundred years ago. And then he went on to say this, talking about growing in grace. He says, The command is one sorely needed in the present state of our average Christianity. Our churches are full of specimens of arrested growth who have scarcely grown since they were babes, infants all their lives. I come to you with a very plain question, and this is what he wrote. Have any of you, have you any more of Christ's beauty? Let me read that again so you don't miss it. This plain question. Have you any more of Christ's beauty in your characters? Any more of His grace in your hearts? Any more of His truth in your minds than you had a year ago? Ten years ago? Have you experienced so many things in vain? Have the years taught you nothing? Ah, brethren, for how many of us it is true, and for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. I have to ask myself the same question. Where am I at? Have I grown? Have I grown in these areas? Some other things to think about with this idea, growing in grace. I think you need to understand the nature of grace. Unmerited favor to each and every one of you. To me. You know, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and he talks about how we were made alive. I love what it says in the King James, and you hath he quickened. But it says it came from the riches of his grace. Have you partaken of the riches of God's grace? Understand the perspective of grace. We are like everyone else. We have not and cannot do anything to deserve it. We don't deserve grace. That fact that we need to be reconciled to God should impact our pride. That we don't deserve grace and there's nothing we can do to change that. I think a lot of times in church, and I'm talking about me sometimes as well, is that I get to thinking, I deserve grace. That somehow something in me has made me more worthy of God's grace than other people. But it's not true. The other thing about this is, is you need to recognize your expectation of grace. See everyone else as you want God to see you. Think about that for a minute. We all want God to see us with the very big lens of His grace. We want him to look past our sin and see inside this person that just want to be, wants to be loved and really is a good person at heart. And we want God to kind of look past all those things about us. You know, as a kid growing up in church, and um, I was in church my whole life, and it was a shock to me. I didn't even know I, I thought that until I became an adult when I realized that I was just as wicked as everybody else. I had just as flawed characters as everybody else without the changing grace of God and His work in my life. What a blow to pride. You know, if you're going to grow in grace, you need to set a personal goal to strive for those graces from the first part of from Peter 2, or 2 Peter, in verse 1. It says, remember this, we read this earlier, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, 
to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Growing in grace is a command. That means it's an act of the will. It needs to be our goal. So when we respond to the things around us, we respond in truth with grace. And that's a growing, developing part of our life. Honestly, I'm not very good at it. Think about this. Forgiveness, rather than rooted in duty, should be rooted in grace. And I think you can never truly forgive until you understand the concept that forgiveness is rooted in grace. And the grace that God gave us, we extend to other people because we're objects of grace. Growing in grace must be a response from our view of ourselves and the realization of how God views us. You know, I might suggest this. It's kind of an interesting thought process. The knowledge of Jesus Christ brings life change, heart change. But growing in grace brings about relationship change. Are there relationships you struggle with? You have damaged relationships. I think about some of the things that, the areas we have relationships and some, some of the places where I've botched these where I don't do very well. And it's kind of a a pyramid, and at the top, my relationship with my wife, and sometimes I don't respond with grace. Sometimes I respond selfishly. And so if you're going going to grow in grace, this should be one of the most important areas that you grow in, in your relationship with your spouse or your family, and how we respond. Those, that right there will revolutionize your life. Your co-workers and your friends, how do we respond to them? Do we see them as objects of grace? And do we respond to them with the same grace that we hope people respond to us? Those who oppose us and disagree with us. You know, I, I admire Mike Pence, our former vice president, because I watched him repeatedly find a way to respond graciously when I wanted this. And I learned from that. Professional. How about those who openly attack us, our beliefs, or our intellect? If we grow in grace, we'll learn how to respond where we don't agree with their position, but we still treat them with grace. Then our enemies who would take our things and destroy our lives Think of that great phrase from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you want to get to know the Savior and grow in grace, look at who he was, look at how he responded, look at how he acted. You know, Jesus was acting in grace when he called Zacchaeus down from the tree, when he called Matthew the tax collector to be one of his followers when he asked Simon the Zealot, who was uh, the kind, he was a revolutionary in, in Israel, to be one of his followers. He was looking at them in grace. So I'd ask this question, how can we hate our brothers and claim to be partakers of the grace of God? We have to watch out for that. If there's people we hate, if there's people in our own family we hate, 
We have a contradiction because we are objects of the grace of God. You know, we must be people of balance, growing in both truth and grace together. I'd, I'd say this just as we wrap this up. Lastly, I think we'll grow in grace when we grasp the cost of it. You know, you read the words from the prophet Isaiah, and the, these always, always put me in a tough position in my heart when I read these. But you think about this. This is what it says in Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. So why was he at the cross? It was for my sin. Let us not forget that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as, the, as a lamb to the slaughter. For our sin, for my sin. You know, I have this picture of my little brother, Blake. Now, some of you know Blake. He's a pastor in Bozeman. Takes care of God's sheep. I have trouble telling the story. He was a cute little kid, you know. I hit him, I hit him in the head once with a baseball bat. Never been the same. Actually, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to hit him. I was just working on my Babe Ruth swing, you know. He was standing right there, and I felt terrible. There wasn't any amount of punishment my parents could mete out that made me feel worse than I did when I heard that kwonk, that bat hitting him in the head. But we had, we had 4-H lambs when we were kids. And you know, the difference between Blake and I is my lamb was always a check. I always knew we took that lamb out of the flock and we fed it, and we would work with it, and they became kind of like pets. I never let mine become my pet because I knew I was going to sell it because it was worth money. That I, that's what I was working for, you know. And you'd, we had a wool card, and you'd get the, get the wool to stand up, and you'd clip it, and you'd trim them, and you'd do all these things. And then you, by the time you go to the fair, that lamb knows you, and you're out there with all these other lambs, and that it would kind of just nuzzle up to you, and that's how it, you would handle this lamb. Well, Blake, Blake had a lamb, and he was probably about that age, eight years old maybe. And we went to the fair, and at the end of the fair, you show the lambs, and you get your ribbon, blue, or whatever it is. And then you have a sale. And some of you have been to the sale and, and here in Helena or somewhere else. And back then, there was a, a slaughterhouse up at Ennis called Fan Mountain. And Blaker's in the, in the, in the auction place and he brings his lamb out there you know and of course being that cute kid he is he always got top price for his stuff by the way Blake's one of those guys he could walk in a room and say something and everybody would laugh and I could walk in and say the exact same thing and half the people would be mad at me um, <laughs> difference in personality but the the auction goes up and the auctioneer says sold you know I mean the, the auctioneers we always thought it sounded like they were going manga 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 but you know it's Anyway, auctioneer talking, and the people who were bidding, they could understand that. We never could, but we, I always listened to that final number because I knew how much my lamb was going to make me. Well, when they go, the auctioneer goes, sold, 
for Blake's lamb. And of course they'd say, where are you sending that? Fan Mountain Meats. I don't think Blake realized his lamb was going to the meat locker, going to the slaughter. Tough day. Poor kid, he cried all night. I always saw it as a check, but not my brother. I guess that's good why God called him to be a pastor. But I wonder, have you ever wept over the lamb you sold to the slaughterhouse? God's lamb. Have you ever wept over your sin? See, because grace isn't cheap. It costs God a lot. It costs Jesus everything. Grace isn't cheap. And if we want to grow in grace, we start there. Oh, my friends, people here in this church, if you want to grow in grace, start by realizing what it costs. There's nothing cheap about it. And when we start to see people as objects of the same grace that we are objects of, our response to the world will be remarkable. And we'll make a difference like God designed us to do. But we must grow in grace. Let's pray together. Father, work in our hearts. Change us. Make us like you. Help us to grow in grace. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, change me. Pray, Lord, that you would be with each person here, that we would pack the message from your word, the words from your scripture in our own hearts. Melt them in there. Help us to know you. Pray all this in Jesus' name.